We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Sermons with Rabbi David Seth Kirchner, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. And my thoughts for today begin with an important question for all of you. A serious question. Do we have a seat in our sanctuary this year for Harvey Weinstein to join us for Yom Kippur services? Is there a place for him? Now I mean it. Is he welcome? We have some seats that are open, and were he to walk in, should we welcome him? Should he be allowed to have an aliyah? Can he walk down the aisle and stand before the Torah during Nila, like all of you will do later today? Can he make his own personal prayers of thanksgiving and of repentance? If your answer is no, okay. But should any other synagogue allow him to come and to repent, or should he be forbidden from all synagogues in attendance on this Yom Kippur? And if he's forbidden from this synagogue or all synagogues, when is the statute of limitations for our forgiveness? Now, for those of you that say, no, Weinstein doesn't belong in our shul for Yom Kippur, I hear you loudly and I hear you clearly. I am saying that as a man because his presence could be wildly intimidating and uncomfortable for so many women in our community considering his past. And I make no judgments on your answer and could certainly understand any person of any gender who would say no. There's no space for Harvey Weinstein in our synagogue on this Yom Kippur. Maybe that's because you or a loved one is the victim of sexual assault or sexual misconduct. It's really hard to be connected to someone who was part of such a movement. This year, the Me Too movement swept our nation in what is a long overdue pause for men worldwide, a pause for many of us for shame and for embarrassment. And it is long past due that this issue be addressed head-on and it come to an immediate cessation. That begins with serious introspection for every man in this room. And it begins with serious talks with our daughters, but even more serious talks with our sons. What Weinstein did is reprehensible. It's embarrassing as a Jew that he's part of the same tribe and embarrassing to our society and humanity. But if he were to call up the office and he sought out tickets for the holidays, I struggle with whether or not we should allow him in to begin the process of repentance. Now I wanna be abundantly clear. I am not championing the idea of forgiving Harvey Weinstein for all that he has done wrong. And I am not supporting the idea of forgiving pedophile priests, or the likes of Louis C.K., or Bill Cosby, or Kevin Spacey, or Matt Lauer, 
or less Moonves, or the long list could go on for literally an hour of these men that were abusive and inappropriate towards women and for some children as well. But I am curious to know when forgiveness, if ever, kicks in and when such people should be afforded an opportunity to re-enter the community. A handful of years ago, I asked the same question on a Shabbat, shortly after Chris Brown assaulted Rihanna, and again after Ray Rice, the running back of the Ravens of Rutgers fame, hit his girlfriend and knocked her out unconscious in an elevator. When could we buy Chris Brown's records again? When could we start tuning into the radio and not changing the station when he were to come on the air? And when, if ever, would it have been right and proper for Ray Rice to have been allowed back in the NFL? Perhaps never. Last night, before we started the words of Colney Dre, there is a short stanza that the Chazan let us in that is unique to Colney Dre and unique in its structure for this high holiday season. For the high court of high in heavens and low, with the knowledge of God and the community, we are asking your permission to pray with the sinners. The formulation of that prayer is simple. It tells us that the sinners are everyone else but us. It's plural, but it doesn't include us, which is antithetical to the way that the Ashamnu prayer is laid out. Ashamnu is in the plural and it includes us. We have sinned, we have spoke unkind, we have acted treacherously, we have done all types of things that have been inappropriate. But the phrase before Kol Nidre is one that says, God, let me pray here amongst all these people who are sinners. And what's crazy about that statement is that when I'm saying it, pure and white and holy, as if I have not sinned, you are saying it, pure and white and holy, as if you have not sinned. And you are saying it, pure and white and holy, as if you've not sinned, but everyone else has sinned. It's antithetical to all of the structure of Yom Kippur, of us being part of a community. It says everyone else are sinners. And it reminds us all that everyone amongst us, whether it's Harvey Weinstein, or our neighbor or our cousin. Everyone has done transgressions that brings us in earnest to this room. My teacher, Professor Yehuda Kurtzer, unpacks this phrase of what it is to pray with sinners. He says, maybe what we're doing is we're trying to constitute what is a beit in a legal court, in the synagogue for people who've done wrong. Or maybe, maybe we're just presupposing that other people are innocent. So when I ask this question about Harvey Weinstein and all of these others, I ask it in sincerity and honesty, not knowing the answer that I would provide. But when, if ever, someone can rejoin community and can seek forgiveness. Sometimes I wish that our religion were just a little bit more clear cut. I wish it gave us some kind of recipe or timeline for the crimes that we do and how long we have to be excommunicated or how long we can hold a grudge. 
Like stealing is two years, and cheating on a test is six months, and cheating on a spouse is three years, and lying is one year, and molestation is 10 years, and rape is 30 years, and murder is 50 years. Or if a priest could just give us a prescription to absolve us, not that we should be turning to priests these days to talk about sins and appropriateness. But couldn't we just figure out some prescription that tells us when a sinner can be welcomed back to our community? The Jerusalem Talmud has this great teaching in it in the Tractate of Ta'anit that also Professor Kurtzer showed us. It says something as follows. It appeared before Rabbi Abahu that a man by the name of Pantakokas, the Greek name, and the name inherently means a troublemaker, someone who is focused on evil, and that's where the Talmud works, giving us names that were indicative of people's behaviors, was needed so that they could pray so that rain would come down. Whenever there was a drought, people would gather together and get a minion. And the question came of this man. Can he join the minion because he's such an evildoer, he's such a criminal, he's such a bad person? So Rabbi Abahu asked him to come, and he said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a, I'm a bad guy. I commit at least five sins every single day. He goes, well, what do you do? He goes, I hire out prostitutes. I carry all the prostitutes' garments to the baths. I dance before them. I hire men for the prostitutes. I, I play the cymbals for them. I do all types of illegal and illicit work. And then Rabbi Abahu says to him, well, what good deed have you ever done? He said, one day I was working close to where all the prostitutes work, and there was a new woman standing there, and she was crying. She was posing as a prostitute. I said to her, what's wrong? And she said, my husband is incarcerated, and I want to see what I can do, what funds I can find to free him. So I sold all I can, and I'm going to work as a prostitute to try and get those funds to free him. And this man, Pantakakos, he took money from his pocket and gave it to this woman and said, go back home. This is not your calling, not where you belong. Take this money and look to free your husband. And when Rabbi Abahu heard that, he said, come and join us for the minion. Of course, you're a part of our community. What Rabbi Abahu was saying is that when we only look at the wrong that someone has done or their profession or how they carry themselves every day and we can't notice something right or good in the process, then we have not done our responsibility. He also went so far to say that even those who do crimes, even on a daily basis, have a place to talk to God and in synagogue. Now, I want to be abundantly clear on this next fact as well. What I'm talking about today is not what is the official or the unofficial punishments for such a crime. In the case of Harvey Weinstein and the case of so many other of these men, it seems like they should be afforded a fair trial, and based on some of the evidence which we've seen, and I wouldn't jump to any conclusions, it's likely that many of them will go to prison and have to serve out parts of their lives in ostracization, as is necessary, as is deserved. That is the very least of compensation we can give to these victims, and they deserve punishments. But what I'm talking about in particular is even the person who's incarcerated, even the person in jail, is there a moment for them when we can start the process of healing and forgiveness? You know who's hip deep in this conversation right now on this very day? Elizabeth Smart. 
She's talking about this topic. You see, her kidnapper and co-conspirator, Wanda Barzi, is as I speak to you at this moment, being released from federal prison, as I speak right now. She was complicit in Elizabeth Smart's kidnapping and her rape and her torture, but she's being released for good behavior. Now, Elizabeth Smart is a devout Mormon, and she's a woman of the church, and I do not blame her or question her or judge her in any way for any feeling that she has had. And she said, just a few days ago, it is incomprehensible how someone who has not cooperated with her mental health evaluations or risk assessments, speaking of Barzi, and someone who didn't show up to her own parole hearing can be released into our community. Meaning that Smart believes she's still a threat to society. I'm trying to understand how and why this is happening and exploring possible options to stop it from happening and to ensure it doesn't happen to anyone else. Now, that's Elizabeth Smart talking about the punishment for those who abducted her. But it doesn't talk about forgiveness. Because when it talks about forgiveness, Elizabeth Smart, a devout Mormon, religious woman, she said the following. She was asked in an interview, when did you realize that you had forgiven your captors? And how did it feel once you had finally forgiven them? And I want to read to you from the transcript of exactly what she says. Elizabeth Smart said, first of all, I think forgiveness is probably one of the greatest forms of self-love there is because you don't do forgiveness for anybody else. My captors will never care if I forgive them. It will not make a day of difference to them at all, but it's gonna make a huge difference to me. If I stay angry from holding on to this in my life, it would be eating away at me. It would mean I wouldn't be 100% of the mother that I wanna to be to my children and wouldn't be 100% of the wife I wanna to be to my husband. I wouldn't be able to work 100% of my energy and passion for those survivors who I'm blessed to work with on a daily basis because inside of me, holding on to this anger and bitterness would be significant percentage that holds back from giving my all. And frankly, I've learned to love myself too much to give any of that to those who hurt me. She continues, I think my mom's advice when I came home were that these people had stolen nine months of my life and the best punishment I could ever give to them is to move forward and to be happy. I think that was given to me at a very poignant time that kind of set me on the course of forgiveness to move on with my life. I don't think I connected moving on with my life to forgiveness at that point. I think it was just some years and years of maturation to realize that forgiveness is not like we're told when we're kids that we just kiss and make up. That I feel like forgiveness is understanding and knowledge that was always for the other person, but it's not. You see, forgiveness, Smart says, is such a big topic. And I think there's this kind of, at least from my perspective, a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. I can say that I forgive my captors. That being said, I never want to see them again. I'm not okay in any way, shape, or manner with what they did to me. It is not right. And I would not allow it to happen again to me or anyone else. And although it's happened, I've moved on in my life, and I don't carry it around inside of me and allow it to eat at me every day. They should stay in prison, and I've accepted that it's happened to me. And because I love myself, I've forgiven them, and I've moved on. 
Smart concludes, maybe that's just my definition. Not every person who hurts someone else will be sorry, and if you're waiting for that apology before you can say it's all right and look magnanimous and forgiving, then that day may never come. And then you'll just be carrying anger, resentment, and upset around with you forever. Wow. She articulates quite masterfully the difference between punishment and forgiveness, reminding us that forgiveness is not necessarily for the other, but just as much, if not more, for ourselves. And in some strange way, although thank God no one I know and I myself have never gone through any ordeal even close to what Elizabeth Smart had to go through, I know exactly what she was staying and where she was coming from. She doesn't want her abductors to be released, but she's able to forgive them without accepting them because forgiveness is more for her than it is for them. Maria Shriver wrote a book called I've Been Thinking, and she covers all types of topics that she's been looking inward on for things that have been challenging for her in her life. And for those of us who follow in the news, we know that her life has not always had a star-studded path. In her book, she covers the topic of forgiveness. Maria Shriver, she writes in her book that if you're struggling, and you're struggling with forgiveness in particular, be gentle to yourself. Because as she wrote, I've learned that forgiveness is a process and forgiveness takes time. What is forgiveness, Shriver says? It's letting go of resentment. It's giving up on feeling harmed or damaged. That doesn't mean that the harm or the damage didn't happen. It means that you're not going to keep revisiting it over and over again, staying stuck in your resentment of the person who caused the harm, even if it's you. Shriver says that she's prayed for a lot of help when it comes to the issue of forgiveness. She's tried to talk herself into it, and often she pushed herself to the forgiveness line before she was ready and to start the action and process of actually forgiving, only to find herself right back where she started, resentful and feeling badly. So Shriver says that to truly get to the place that she wanted to be, which was to be steady and solid and peaceful and forgiving, she started with herself. She said that when I found myself berating my own self for choices I made, opportunities I missed, people I misjudged, behaviors I condoned, the whole thing, she would just stop. She would declare, no more. She started being kind to herself over and over again. And once she started easing up on herself, she found that it was a lot easier to ease up on others. And she realized that what she needed, so did they. She said, if I had made mistakes and deserved to be forgiven, so too did the people in my life who had made mistakes and deserved to be forgiven. If I had hurt another and could be forgiven and move on, so too could they. And if I had been critical and judgmental of someone and could be forgiven, so too could they. If she could let go of her resentments and judgments of herself, it would be a lot easier to let go of those resentments and judgments of others as well. Forgiveness is just that. 
It's letting go of the need to feel like a victim. If we work on it, we'll lighten our load of negativity that we too often carry around that hurts our shoulders, our backs, changes our posture, and can't allow us to be whole. Maybe it was that sagacious wisdom of Shriver or Smart that was living long ago in 1947, just two years after the Holocaust, when Corey Boom was glad to shake the hand of the guard from the concentration camp of Ravensbrück, where she and her sister had been held. You see, Corey was born in April of 1892. She lived in Amsterdam. She was not Jewish, she was Christian, and she hid Jews during the Holocaust. She was captured in 1943, and she was taken to this internment camp called Ravensbrück. And there, she and her sister were beaten regularly for their role in aiding the Jews and working against the Reich. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. It recounts the whole story of her family's efforts. But afterwards, when liberation happened, people slowly started to return to their life. She came across the two guards that were stationed over her while she and her sister were interned. She extended her hand and shook their hand in order to make amends and to forgive. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if so many other people who have suffered through the Holocaust could do that either. And there are countless testimonies of people who had done terrible things in the Holocaust who had then extended their hand to the survivors and the survivors refused to give them that dignity for all the dignity that they tried to erase. So clearly for some people they were able to forgive and for others it was an impossibility and none of us are allowed to sit in judgment of those actions. As Jews, we get a chill up our spine when we hear the name of Joseph Mengele, the evil doctor who was part of the Nazi party and was stationed at Birkenau and did all types of horrible medical experiments, particularly on twins. One set of twins that he did experiments on were the core twins, Eva and Miriam. Eva survived, her sister died. But Mengele issued a death certificate for his sister, excuse me, for her sister. And in doing so, Eva felt like she was able to have some finalization, some closure to her sister's death, which so many other people in the Holocaust were never afforded. And for that, she feels like she was given a small gift in the middle of an ongoing and unspeakable nightmare. After everything that Eva was forced to go through, she actually decided a handful of years ago and became well known for putting this out on the internet to forgive Dr. Mengele. She found in herself the power to forgive. Now she's in her 90s. And she is a noted lecturer, author, and the founder of a group called CANDLES, which stands for Children of Auschwitz Nazi Deadly Lab Experiment Survivors. Somehow or another, she decided to forgive, but I think she forgave a lot less for what Mengele did and a lot more to allow her to release those burdens. 
John Paul II was almost murdered, but in December 27th of 1983, he forgave Mehmed Adli Aga, who shot him in St. Peter's Square. In September of 1990, Representative John Lewis, was, who was severely beaten during the Civil Rights Movement, wrote in the New York Times op-ed that George Wallace is a changed man and that he should be forgiven. Nelson Mandela in 1990 also wrote after his release that we need to forgive each other because when you intend to forgive, you heal part of the pain. But when you forgive, you heal completely. On October 2nd, 2006, within hours of the school shooting that left five little Amish girls dead, members of the Amish community gathered together to visit the killer's wife to offer her comfort and support. After that infamous story of Rabbi Adler being shot on the bima in synagogue by a deranged, mentally unfit young man in his community, it was his wife, Goldie Adler, while his, her husband was on life support, who brought a meal of consolation to the boy who had taken his own life on the bima to demonstrate her love and support for the parents. And just days after the horrible crime of Dylan Roof, who took the lives of nine church members in South Carolina, so many who survived that horrible shooting came together and they said, Dylan, you took something very precious away from us and we'll never be able to talk to those people again. I'm never gonna be able to hold my daughter's hand. And the mother of Taiwanza Sanders says, we welcomed you Wednesday night to our Bible study with open arms, and you killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Taiwanza Sanders is my son. He was my hero. But may God have mercy on you. When the Chazan recites the Unatana Tokef prayer, he says this line that we often don't pay much attention to. V'chol d'mama d'aka yishama that we should hear the little silent whispering inner voice inside of us telling us the paths that we should follow in life. Is it possible that this year that small inner voice could be whispering to us, find a place for forgiveness, forgive them. It doesn't mean that we accept that which they did. It doesn't mean that they are deserving of no punishment but it does mean that it's time for us to let go of what we can and to begin that process. Now you might ask the question, how do I forgive when my heart hurts so much? And why do I have to forgive when so many of the people who hurt me aren't even sorry? Sometimes I get this feeling of saying, God, don't you see them? Don't you see what they're doing? Look how little they care. Why are you setting them free of consequences for what they've done? Get them, God. Go get them good. We need you. Let them suffer and give me some satisfaction. We've all said that prayer silently to ourselves, partly because we want to be angry, and we want them to feel our pain, and we want them to feel our hurt like we do, especially since they didn't even have the humanity to ask for forgiveness or apologize what they've done. But what we realize is that our attempts to bind someone else to hurt that they have caused 
All it does is feel like putting handcuffs on our own hands and tying us up to the bars. When we withhold forgiveness, we not only withhold and prolong healing, but it assures us that what was said or what was done or how someone behaved is going to dwell in our hearts and in our minds for far too long. Before we know it, we are another one of those hurt people tromping along, perhaps using that anger to hurt others and not being the best of who we can be. Forgiveness is a choice that we make. It's not an emotion that we feel. To forgive another is to make that intentional choice to be free from what it was that hurt us. It is choosing healing instead of choosing bitterness. It's choosing freedom instead of revenge because we can't live in the bondage of someone else's choices and how they've hurt us. Whether the offender is repentant or not, whether they are in prison or not, whether they have been punished or not is irrelevant. Forgiveness is needed for us because forgiveness is for you and it's for me. It's not for those who cause the wound. Forgiveness is for you and it's for me. It's not for them. In the middle of the continuation of the Me Too movement, I want to suggest the following pathways to seek forgiveness and to grant forgiveness. And in sharing these with you today, I want you to know that I've been inspired by a fellow rabbi, Danya Ruttenberg, who lives in Washington, who explained this beautifully in her article in the Washington Post just a week ago. She asks, are these men who did these terrible things to women that are all being highlighted in the Me Too movement, are they sorry? Should they be forgiven? And more to the point, who are the ones that have the right to forgive them? And in my words, should we allow them a seat in our shul on Yom Kippur? Rabbi Rotenberg teaches that Jewish tradition tells us that repentance is really hard work, which is in total contrast to the glib and easy way that many of these accused perpetrators are seeking cheap forgiveness from popular culture. America, we really like comebacks. We're quick to welcome a comeback, in part, because as a society, we really don't know what it is to atone. The bad actor has to own that harm that they created. In an ideal society, in an ideal format, they own it publicly. The second thing they need to do is they have to do the hard internal work to become the kind of person who doesn't do this harm ever again in any way, which is a massive undertaking which demands tremendous inward thinking and the confrontation of unpleasant aspects of ourselves and trying to fix them. Then, we have to make restitution for the harm that was done in whatever way that's possible to do so. Then and only then must that perpetrator apologize for their acts sincerely to those who they caused harm to and those on the periphery whom they caused harm to. And lastly, the next time they're confronted with the opportunity to commit a similar misdeed, they have to make a different and better choice. So many of those that I started off these words with today, so many of them 
haven't taken that path. Some of them said, you know, if I did behave the way as this person describes, like that's what Kevin Spacey said, or not complaining about the impact on their work or their fans or their family, like Matt Lauer or Mario Batali said, with minimal focus on the victims. And not minimizing the complaints as Charlie Rose did, or blaming God as Bill O'Reilly did, or guessing what the victims might have thought like Louis C.K. did. Issuing these superficial and narcissistic public statements, they don't allow the process of healing to begin. A reminder is for people who start this process in earnest to begin again. On a human ethical level, all of us have a path towards repentance, towards understanding the harm that we've caused and toward doing the work of repair and restitution to whatever degree that's possible. All of us have the ability to grow, become better, to realize what we've done, and to start again. Isn't that the essence of why we're here? It was Gandhi, after all, who once said, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. Today, is a day for us to be strong, for us to be fortified, for us to look inside, and for us to look outside. Today is a day for us to forgive. Not forget the past, not accepting or allowing what has happened, or allowing it to ever become acceptable. Forgiving has nothing to do with punishment and the time it takes for people to be reformed and for victims to heal. But forgiveness is a really heavy burden that's hard to lug around throughout the years, and then especially when it snowballs. Today is a day to jettison all of that anger and resentment and upset to begin again. Don Henley of the Eagles said it beautifully. There are people in your life who've come and who have gone. They let you down and they hurt your pride. Better put it all behind you. Life goes on. Otherwise, you keep carrying that anger, and it will eat you inside. I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter, but my will gets weak, and my thoughts seem to scatter. But I think it's about forgiveness. Forgiveness. Most people on this day, they seek forgiveness. Today, I'm asking you to consider offering forgiveness. Not necessarily to absolve those who have wronged you, but to, but to free you of the chains and pains and hurt of carrying that pain around with you every day. The truth is, I would venture to guess that most people in this room have had no direct connection with Matt Lauer or Harvey Weinstein or Kevin Spacey or any of those people. Their victims will have the task of forgiving them if and when they are ready. But everyone in this room knows someone that has wronged them. Everyone in this room has someone who has hurt them, who has caused them pain, some knowingly and some unknowingly. Today is that day not only to seek forgiveness from those parties, but to consider granting forgiveness to those parties. Whether it's a parent, a child, a spouse, a sibling, a neighbor, an old doormate, an old boyfriend or girlfriend. Yom Kippur is an open invitation that provides us the release 
of that pent-up frustration and anger to move forward through the possibility of forgiveness. Do not feel forced to do this act by my words. Make sure the time is right. Make sure it feels right. But please consider it. Henley was right. It really is the heart of the matter. And we carry it with us every day.